Hello, everyone. This is Jerry Lee, co-host of Allergy Talk. Based on your feedback, each Allergy Watch review episode will now be offering continuing medical education. In order to get your CME, we'll provide the details on our Allergy Talk website. That's college.acaai.org slash allergy talk. And of course, with any new initiative, we'd love your feedback. You can give us feedback at our email address, which is allergytalk one word at acaai.org. Thanks for listening. Please stay tuned to the end of this program or see the show notes for important information regarding today's speakers and the content of this podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 9 of Allergy Talk, a roundup of the latest in the field of allergy and immunology by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For today's episode, we'll be reviewing three articles about asthma from the November-December 2019 issue of Allergy Watch, a bi-monthly publication which provides research summaries to college members from the major journals of allergy and immunology. To subscribe to Allergy Watch, head over to college.acaai.org slash publications slash Allergy Watch. Well, welcome once again after the holiday break. My name is Jerry Lee. I'm Associate Professor at Emory University and the co-host of Allergy Watch. And as usual, I'm joined by Dr. Marin Kalangara. This is Marin Kalangara. I'm Assistant Professor of Allergy and Immunology at Emory University. And our third chair is by Dr. Stan Feynman. Um, welcome to the podcast. Stan. Well, thanks. And it's great to be here. And I'm a past president of the college and the uh, current editor-in-chief of Allergy Watch. So I was thinking we we're going to change things up a bit. I think we always have this order where Stan goes first. But, uh, you know, I think naturally we think about asthma and stages, you know, our risk factors for developing or having asthma flare-ups and then treatment. So we have a couple f- uh, articles from the uh, November-December issue that we'll start with, and I will go first. And so this article uh, was published um, last year, and the lead author is Ann Fitzpatrick, who is, we are very fortunate to have on our faculty. She is uh, involved in multiple multicenter trials, including AsthmaNet and the Severe Asthma Research Program. And so this one comes out of the Severe Asthma Research Program. So uh, the title of the article is Racial Disparities in Asthma-Related Care, Use, in the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute Severe Asthma Research Program. And so the background is, is we know that there are racial disparities in asthma. So if you look at statistics on health utilization according to ethnicity, we know black patients with asthma have a disproportionately higher rate of asthma, 13.4% point, in children versus 7.6%. And outpatient physician visits, asthma exacerbations, where ED visits are 3.5-fold higher, and asthma-related death, unfortunately, is 2.8-fold higher. Now, traditionally, uh, this has been examined mainly on biology. And, you know, there was some evidence to suggest that would be the case, um, includes uh, biological factors, family history, allergen sensitization and serum Ig was seen associated with asthma refractory to corticosteroid treatment in black patients. And additionally, they did see 
some other observations, such as black patients with severe asthma having significantly lower lung function and an earlier age onset. But, you know, some single-center studies suggested that if you took the two groups but then controlled for social economic factors, that those disparities seemed to disappear. So I think that was the question that uh, Dr. Fitzpatrick and the group wanted to answer with this paper, that if you really looked at the social determinants of health, and we know that influences disease, is there any remaining biological differences that we contribute to ethnicity in terms of the disparity we see in asthma? So the the way this study uh, was conducted is that they have this uh, ongoing prospective cohort where they enroll patients with a physician, physician diagnosis of asthma. The, you know, they've demonstrated reversibility or a positive methicoline challenge. And basically, to do a baseline, baseline visit, they do a six-month visit to assess asthma control and healthcare utilization. And then they do a 12-month study visit where off bronchodilators, they'll do a full characterization, spirometry, exhaled nitric oxide, aeroallergen panel, asthma control tests, but at the same time, they will get a lot of questionnaire data, and that would include, you know, where they live, education, their housing, their economic characteristics, their household size, and race in this study was by self-report. So when trying to determine the influence of some of these variables, they use this statistical test called inverse probability of treatment weighting. And so it's just sort of a propensity score trying to match and adjust confounders that could potentially cloud whether um, the two groups are really based on ethnicity or maybe some of these other factors. And they use different models that controlled for the the family, the social economic status, the community, and exposures. And so they looked at 51 variables and found that um, when they used a model in order to look at the difference between the two groups and control for all the factors I just talked about, there was actually no difference in the healthcare utilization of white and black participants in terms of the primary outcome, which is emergency department to visit. Now, they did see that black participants were, had less outpatient care for asthma. But essentially, you know, when we think of exacerbations like, you know, the, 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 the burden of recurrent hospitalization ED, that actually the social determinants seem to explain a lot of the difference. And so if we think going forward, how do we help, help close these healthcare disparities? It really reminds us that you know, we really should be treating the entire patient. And so it is absolutely relevant for us to assess um, the non-medical vital signs of health. And I'm really quoting this from, you know, Robert Wood Johnson and other organizations where they talk about employment, education, literacy, their environment. And in fact, if we were able to support our patients and address those uh, cofactors in asthma, that might actually have a higher impact on their eventual health rather than what we traditionally think of was what is this biological marker and you know what is this new injection I can start and so on. I, I think it's a really good reminder of how 
complex asthma is and you know what it really needs to take to get these patients under control. So that actually ties really nicely into the paper that I'm about to discuss next. But yes, I mean, we do recognize this social gradient in asthma, and we know that just the diagnosis of asthma itself increases with successive levels of poverty. And there's lots of different things that go into it beyond biologics. And uh, one of the things that I'm going to be talking about, in addition to, say, indoor allergens and uh, air pollution that's more commonly seen among the inner city population is also the role of diet um, that's seen in this community. Yeah, and I look forward to hearing your discussion on that. And uh, Jerry, I'm glad you brought this uh, paper up because it just shows uh, that we do have to look at the whole patient. And so when we see the patient in our office, we have to uh, not just consider their uh, symptoms, but also some of the uh, other factors such as their you know, school, their social situation, you know, who's at home, who's taking care of the child, if it's a child, you know, a lot of things. So uh, it's good that you brought this paper up. Thanks. All right. No, yeah, let's hear from you, Mayor. All right. So uh, I'm going to be discussing a paper that was published out of Johns Hopkins last year and presents data from the asthma diet study in Baltimore. It focuses on the role of diet in lung health and particularly the ratio of omega-3 fatty acids, which are purported to be anti-inflammatory, to pro-inflammatory omega-6 fatty acids. And there has been a shift in the ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 in the past few decades, and this has been proposed as a potential cause of the increased occurrence of allergic disease itself due to changes in the proportion of downstream metabolites. Omega-3 fatty acids are the precursors of molecules known as pro-resolving mediators or resolvins, and these help to resolve inflammation in the body and can also be found in the lung. On the other hand, omega-6 fatty acids, the consumption of which has dramatically increased in the United States in the past century, give rise to a more complex balance of anti-inflammatory and pro-inflammatory compounds, but of note are the source of leukotrienes that are key molecules involved in asthma pathogenesis. And there have been several cross-sectional studies that have shown this association between diets high in omega-6 or low in omega-3 fatty acids and the development of atopic disease, but prospective cohorts have been inconsistent. The effect of asthma, uh, the and diet has been studied several times, but results have been conflicting, and it's likely due to the challenges of just performing these studies itself, and challenges with separating nutritional influences from other indirect effects like weight loss. What the authors were trying to look at in this study was that whether these omega-6 fatty acids could be further contributing to disease severity and symptoms in response to indoor air pollution, which is often elevated in inner city homes, and they looked at 135 inner-city children who were typically eating low amounts of omega-3 and high amounts of omega-6 fatty acids. And they underwent assessments of indoor particulate matter concentrations and dietary intake via questionnaires, as well as their asthma symptoms, and followed every week up to six months. And what they found was that higher levels of omega-6 intake appeared to augment the effect of exposure to particulate matter on daytime asthma symptoms. And after adjustment for confounders, for every gram of omega-6 intake, children were 29% more likely to have severe asthma. 
and each additional gram of omega-6 intake was associated with higher odds of experiencing symptoms associated with exposure to indoor pollution. And this effect was reduced with higher intake of omega-3 fatty acids. Higher dietary intake of omega-6 fatty acids was also associated with reduced spirometry and further the harmful effects of these omega-6 fatty acids on the association between indoor air pollution and asthma symptoms were most pronounced when dietary intake of omega-3 was lower. So the study has obvious limitation, the foremost being that dietary intake was self-reported using a food frequency questionnaire. And additionally, the study was observational in design, and this precludes determination of a causal relationship or ruling out other possible contributory factors. But overall, their conclusion was that among inner-city children, a diet that's higher in omega-6 fatty acids may worsen asthma severity, but not just that, increase the response to indoor particulate air pollution, whereas the increased consumption of omega-3 fatty acids may have beneficial effects, and that a healthier diet may protect the strata of inner-city children with asthma from some of the harmful effects of air pollution. I thought this was just another interesting piece that's been accumulating supporting the role of diet and what they refer to as an inflammatory diet in asthma control, especially in the pediatric population. So when the grandmothers were giving the children cod liver oil, Is that a good thing? Yes, I I would be supposedly protective. Although it hasn't really translated into lower rates of um, asthma and atopy when they looked at prenatal administration. So the bottom line is we don't really know. Grandma's always right. (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, Maren, the thing that strikes me about articles like this is sort of our helplessness to to, to assist patients, um, you know, especially if they're focusing on the inner city population where they've talked about mm-hmm. these food deserts where the accessibility, you know, you're talking about fresh fruits and vegetables is the intervention. You know, how, how do you provide those healthy choices to patients when you got the fast food restaurant or convenience store mm-hmm. basically down the block as your proximal uh, source of nutrition. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it just shows us how complex it is to address these issues where we know these vulnerable populations, even if they wanted to get the advice that we give, have significant challenges. Yeah, it just seems like uh, more and more we're learning that uh, fresh foods and, um, you know, those types of things are going to help us in uh, in our health in a lot of ways maybe yeah. pre- maybe preventing uh some of the detrimental effects of particulate matter in some of the kids with asthma so I, i'm i'm all for fresh foods yeah you wonder <laughs> how much how much an, a simple intervention as regular diet and exercise would transform healthcare for sure easier said than done but mm-hmm. you know just sort of how um just two very simple interventions could probably fix a lot of the reasons people are on medicine or seeing the doctor. Yeah. I mean, easier said than done, unfortunately, but, uh, and also these studies would be really hard to do because like I said, how would you separate a direct effect of a specific nutritional intervention from just an overall sort of global effect of changing your diet? Yeah. And, and, and again, I, I think, I, I don't know, 
I don't know if a lot of you go to Bill Silver's talks about uh, from Colorado, how he talks about the diet recommendations and the exercise recommendations. He integrates in every single allergy patient. I, I think it does really show mm-hmm. that um, those are meaningful um, rather than just general advice. Well, I think you're right. And in fact, uh, you know, as we uh, learn more, such as studies like you just presented, um, you know, we realize, in, you know, in, integrative medicine is very important. Right. And so, uh, you know, we can honestly tell our patients, you know, I do want you to eat a healthier diet. And there is data from medical s- journals that show it can benefit. You oh, know? Absolutely. So, you know, I think it's good to be able to have that data supporting us. Yeah. I mean, and this is slightly off topic, but another uh, population in which the specific dietary intervention was studied was in the AERD patients. And there was a paper that came out, I think, last year that showed that changing the ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 fatty acids was associated with a symptomatic improvement, even when implemented for a very short period of time. And I think they chose this particular population because of the role of leukotrienes in the pathogenesis of AERD. So it's another one of those things where the ERD patients are always asking what they can do in their diet and whether a salicylate-free diet would help. And I've just started suggesting like a change in their omega-3 fatty acid intake. Patients definitely want and respond to non-medicine interventions. You know, another drug they have to pick up. I think they're going to respond to, mm-hmm. as, you, as we're using the term integrative, unfortunately, some people immediately have ideas, but we're really talking about healthy habits that have multiple beneficial effects, supported by evidence, for sure. Um, But again, let's talk about the treatment side. I I guess we do, we still need medicine, though, right? (laughs) Right. So for the uh, last article of this segment, um, uh, I I, I chose the one from uh, New England Journal of Medicine that was uh, uh, published in uh, May of of 19, 2019, entitled Control Trial of Budesonide for Moderol as Needed for Mild Asthma. And this was reviewed uh, by uh, uh, Chitra um, Denikar in, uh, the, uh, in the Allergy Watch. And this was an interesting study. It was a uh, one-year study, uh, and the patients uh, had persistent asthma, and they were randomized into three groups. Uh, one used albuterol as needed, one used budesonide daily, and then albuterol as needed for flare-ups. And the other uh, used the budesonide for moderol combination inhaler um, just as needed uh, when they started having flare-ups. And so uh, they were able to analyze uh, 668 patients uh, and compare uh, their, uh, the endpoint, which the primary endpoint or primary outcome measure was the rate of asthma exacerbations per patient. They had a number of secondary outcomes as well, including uh, the time to first exacerbation, the number of severe exacerbations, the number of patients who even withdraw from the study, also lung function, uh, 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 exhale nitric oxide, and uh, quality of life measures. So there were a few secondary measures, but the main endpoint was annualized rate of asthma exacerbations per patient. And what they found was that the annualized rate of exacerbations for the budesonide for moderol group versus the albuterol group was, um, was 0.195 for the combo group and 0.4. So it's almost double 
the number of exacerbations for the albuterol as needed group compared to the group that used the uh, combo drug intermittently. And then they compared it to the uh, annual rate, annualized rate of exacerbations for the, for the combo, the budesonide for moderol versus budesonide maintenance. And um, it was a little lower for the combo. It was 0.95 versus, um, oh, I'm sorry, it was lower for the uh, maintenance, 0.175 versus 0.95 um, for the, uh, the, co- the combo, but it wasn't statistically significant. So it did not achieve statistical significance there, whereas the, some of the secondary outcomes were, I think, a little more um, you know, uh, telling in terms of the uh, exacerbations, the number of exacerbations, albuterol used as needed, it was uh, 23, budesonide maintenance, 21, the combo, only nine. So uh, those needed prednisone, interestingly, the albuterol as needed was 23, budesonide, 23, budesonide, uh, and for moderol combo was only nine, so almost like a third of those. And when you looked at uh, markers of inflammation, such as uh, exhaled nitric oxide, there was no change in the albuterol as needed group, but the group that used budesonide daily had a very similar reduction in their exhaled nitric oxide compared to the group uh, with budesonide from moderol. So budesonide alone, uh, maintenance uh, went from 38 to 25, parts per billion, and the combo drug was 37 down to 26 parts per billion. So the maintenance budesonide was found to be superior when you consider control of asthma symptoms, but did not result in the lower number of severe exacerbations, So, uh, which is, of course, their key outcome measure. Uh, Chitra, um, in her comments, uh, said that this is really an open-label study mimicking real-world practice and makes as-needed budesonide for moderol reliever therapy as a reasonable, practical approach to treatment of mild asthma. However, since maintenance treatment with budesonide was superior for control of asthma symptoms, it does suggest that in patients with bothersome asthma symptoms, maintenance-inhaled steroid is really the name of the game. I I would love to hear your experiences uh, trying to implement uh, this strategy. I I think... What I'm finding in my own experience is that now with the approval of generic fluticasone salmeterol, I'm starting to lose budesonide and mometasone formoterol as the preferred therapy for my managed Medicaid patients. And so what ends up happening is even if I wanted to do this, it's now dropping off formulary because now we have a generic. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you're seeing, seeing that. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because yeah. you're right. Um, and that's a challenge for me because, as we all know, uh, the salmeterol, it takes about 20 minutes before you start seeing a bronchodilator effect. And I wonder if you use that as your long-acting bronchodilator compared to the formoterol, mm-hmm. and, uh, which is, of course, a rapid-acting, long-acting bronchodilator. Um, would you get the same type of effect? Because in a lot of patients, when we first had the uh, combination of the uh, fluticasone and uh, salmeterol come out, uh, patients told me that I don't feel anything. You know, they, some of them even used an albuterol inhaler when they used their uh, combo. Uh, whereas the ones who use the formoterol, which is a rapid acting, they say, oh, I feel this working. Yeah. So... Um, there's a difference in the molecules, and unfortunately, some of these formulary boards don't understand that, which is a frustrating for me, you know, frustration for me. 
Oh, I mean, I agree. That would be the major limitation in most of our patients is just being able to prescribe it. I mean, I have personally used this strategy in the past for my mild intermittent asthmatics, but not for my step three to step fives. Right, and where you're asking them to the insurance company to cover both a controller as well and as, the rescue yeah. with a quantity limit. I think that that's mm-hmm. the other thing. So, you know, uh, there's that draft of the U.S. guidelines, the EPR-4, that's at the time of this recording is uh, they closed the comment period and we'll see uh, if they make any modifications. Um, that seems to suggest that that is the recommended step up uh, if you are on step four therapy and are on inhaled corticosteroid long-acting beta agonists and you still have uncontrolled symptoms, replacement of your rescue with another ICS for Motorol for rescue seems to be the step recommended step up therapy. So if that influences you know, how formularies make decisions, then yes, I think it would be more likely we'll be able to implement these sorts of things because Gina's been out for a while and they've not listened to that, that's for sure. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. Like the most recent Gina guidelines are are different from EP4. So what do we, you know? Yeah, it would have happened by now if they cared, but I don't know. uh (laughs) And you know what you said in the very beginning is right. Uh, Patients are going to sort of do their own thing. Right. And as we all know, they don't always take the medications on a regular basis like we recommend. So a lot of them are going to be using things as needed. And um, anyway, I think that collecting data like this is uh, is important, and it uh, helps us uh, really in advising our patients of what to do. Of course, it's very nice to have mm-hmm. a generic version of the two-formotoral combination products that would also help me out a lot (laughs) so whatever that is i'm not sure all right um well again thank you very much for joining us um we really appreciate all the feedback people have given to us for now um please continue to rate our podcast if you have the time on itunes or so on and we are reading your feedback so there was one suggestion for a drug allergy centered episode we are planning that so we are listening to your feedback if you have other topics you'd like to hear on our program please email us at allergy talk one word at acaai.org for the first time this episode is now certified for continuing medical education so you uh We will send out the details in the show notes and um, please let us know if that is seamless and working for you. We are so happy that the college has decided to support this podcast and, you know, you get a little CME credit out of it. So, you know, why not? That sounds great. The ACAAI is presenting this podcast for educational purposes only. It is not medical advice or intended to replace the judgment of a licensed physician. The college is not responsible for any claims related to procedures, professionals, products, or methods discussed in the podcast, and it does not approve or endorse any products, professionals, services, or methods that might be referenced. Today's speakers have the following disclosures. Drs. Lee and Dr. Kangara have nothing to disclose, and Dr. Feynman has been a speaker for AZBI and Shire and has done research for AMU, DBV, Shire, and Regeneron.